we proclaim the Lord's death, we're professing not just our unity in the body, but also our equality. We're all one body. We have equal standing in the body. You're listening to a sermon series titled Together, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. The first century church was not unlike the 21st century church. Well, there certainly have been uh, volumes of history written between these 20 centuries, but notwithstanding the social, the cultural, and the political differences, what is similar between the first century and the church today, 2,000 years later, is a temptation. And there's a temptation to, within the believer to put the importance of the community, this community. Uh, we could call it this fellowship, this gathering of the called out ones who have been regenerated. We've been made new. We are now in Christ. There's a temptation both in the the early church, and today to put the importance of our community aside in preference to comfort and self-centeredness. So the writer of the text I just quoted to you from Hebrews was communicating to his audience in what can strongly be argued as in the presence or the, the a form of a sermon. And his argument, his argument in the book of Hebrews is that in light of Jesus being better than all things, better than the angels. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system of Judaism. He's better than any high priest. He's better than any sacrifice of bull or goat. Because Jesus is better, we are not to be shaken. We are not to lose hold of the hope that we profess as his followers. We are not to lean away from the assembly, but we are to lean in. And so our coming together, our meeting together, is to continue to happen, and we're to continue to meet and continue to encourage one another. And the audience that received that letter that we call Hebrews were certainly being pressured by a lot of different things, by persecution, by hardship, and by discouragement because of the culture around them. And with everything happening in the world to that first century church, it would have been far easier for them to just skip out on uh, the habit or make it a habit of skipping out on the gathering. Just make it a habit of skipping the gathering. And apparently some of them did have a reputation for their lack of attendance. But the writer says, listen, in light of how gloriously better Christ is than anything in this world, I'm exhorting you to not let your church community fall by the wayside. Now today, you and I find ourselves in equally turbulent waters. We today have a global pandemic which now introduces us to the notion that the very community that we love and that we connect with may be a threat to us medically. 
We have governing authorities that are weighing in on which organizations are essential and which ones are non-essential. Just go to social media. Well, don't, but if you were to go to social media, you see opinionated arguments on every side. You see media hype. You see fear. You see a lot of us going through financial distress and even racial division and protesting in our communities during a season when the church is being outright forbidden or at least restricted in gathering together publicly. And so most churches have moved their services online But I've been wondering from the very beginning, is that really church? Can you just yell out a no right now? No, no, that's not church. That's viewing the church. That's watching a sermon. That's listening and singing along to music. But that's been very hard for me to say, and we haven't said, join us for church online. That's hard to say because, listen, I can't lay hands on the sick through my computer screen. (laughs) I can't necessarily receive the Lord's Supper virtually. There's no such thing as digital baptism. And so we certainly um, look at the Bible, and the Bible calls the church a body. And if we certainly believe we're a body, well, then this last season we have been a separated, isolated, socially distanced body, which by definition means that we are a bunch of disjointed body parts and organs and tissue, but we have not truly been together. Now, some of us, I mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago, some of us have been overwhelmed by this distance, by this isolation, and the last three months have certainly been challenging and discouraging. But some of us, like the first century believers, may have been tempted to enjoy this space maybe a little too much. And I'm saying we because it can happen to all of us. We might say, you know, I like a church where no one sees me wearing my pajamas. I kind of appreciate that. I like a church where I don't have to do anything but spectate. I like a church where I don't have to get into the messy details of, you know, conversation and and interaction and, you know, intimacy and knowing people. I, I like a church where I can just be anonymous. I'm just another stat on the viewing totals. I like a church where I don't have to serve. I don't have to contribute. I don't have to be needed. I don't have to exact any blood, sweat, or tears. I just kind of show up and expect, either online or in person, someone to produce some good worship music, someone to pray a heartfelt prayer, preach a powerful sermon, and give me some truth for my day. Thank you very much. That's a church that I will like and subscribe to. You see, that's troubling, and and yet that is not the church, and that is why this sermon series is so crucial. It's so critical. And so for the next five weeks, it is so important that we come together and lean forward and learn what, or more accurately, who the church is. So in this series, we're going to look at what it means from 1 Corinthians and some other texts, what it means to use our gifts in the church. We're going to see what it means to be a part of the church. Some people say a member, a participant, a member in the church. Uh, We're going to see what the true mission of the church is. What does it mean to be on mission for the gospel? And finally, we're going to see what biblical church leadership looks like. But to start our series out today, we're going to look at what is the church. And to answer that question, we turn our attention to what we call 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul, like the writer of the book of Hebrews, he is addressing some of his uh, recipients of the letter— and he is correcting some of their self-centered attitudes towards the church community. 
Now, to set this up, we read through it a minute ago, and it may be a little confusing to get the context of what this actually is getting at. Like, what was the the contextual things happening in that church that Paul would say you're getting drunk and some of you are falling asleep? What is that about? Like, like what does he mean by falling asleep? Does that mean they were getting bored in the sermon? What's going on here? And so look on the screen, listen to these words from um, one commentator. He says, in the early days of the church, Christians celebrated the agape or shared in love feast along with the Lord's Supper. The love feast was something like a common meal shared in a spirit of love and fellowship. We call it a potluck nowadays, right? Uh, At the end of the love feast, the Christians often had the remembrance of the Lord with the bread and wine. But before long, abuses crept in. For instance, in this verse, it is implied that the love feast lost its real meaning. Not only did the Christians not wait for one another, but the rich ones shamed their poorer brethren by having lavish meals and not sharing them. Some went away hungry, whereas others were actually drunk. Since the Lord's Supper often followed the love feast, they would still be drunk when they sat down to partake of the Lord's Supper. Just imagine that with me, getting drunk and abusing communion. Taking what was intended to be a loving meal and and turning that into selfishness. Twisting beautiful fellowship into ugly division. What was intended to be a group of believers coming together to just share food and to enjoy one another's company and to celebrate who Christ was, it morphed into something that looked just like the pagan culture around them. So what would Paul say to them as a church? And we're going to study this text together. And what we're going to do is we're going to exposit this text But at the same time, we're going to make some important points as we develop a working uh, definition of the church. So I want you to jot five marks of the church down that we're going to be looking at from this text. This is not exhaustive, by the way. There is so much more we could say that the church is. So I'm going to try to get like in one sermon in 40 minutes, what is the church? That's, That's a challenge for us today. This is not exhaustive. There's many more passages of scripture. I'm not doing a full exegesis of every scripture that talks about the church. But we'll use this text to draw some ideas, all right? So with that in mind, number one, the church is a gathering. Can you say gathering with me today? The church is a gathering. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you hear this, come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Notice that phrase, circle it, highlight it, underline it, come together. It's mentioned here in verse 17. It's mentioned in verse 18, 20, 33, and 34. He's not just speaking about coming together and having a meal. He's saying whenever you come together, when the church gathers. And so this is reminding us that the church is a gathering. When God's people come together, we are the church. Now, sometimes I hear Christians saying, and a lot have said during this pandemic, but we are the church. And you're right. You are right. You are a part of the greater body of Christ. We are the church universal. The church universal is a collective from every people group one day who confess the Lord uh, Jesus and who have been made alive, we would say regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So yes, we are the church. But listen, it is impossible, if not an incredible exception to be a true Christian and not be connected to a local church. 
If you find that to be a controversial statement, that's fine. Email me later. Now, I've heard people say all the time, the church is not a building. It's not a building. It's a people. And I would say, yeah, I hear you. But actually, some of my friends have posted lately in their blogs, the church is a building. Here's a verse for you, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That sounds like a structure. Built, that's structural language, on the foundation. We use that language with buildings. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built, here's the series title again, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church then is a holy dwelling place that is built upon the person and work of Christ as individual members are joined together and were built up in our faith. So when we say the church is a gathering, we say it's a gathering, it's a building, it's, a, it's, a, it's an equipping place where we come together. And, and when I say that it's a gathering, what I don't mean, of course, is that it's a social club or that it's an exclusive country club where you come and you're like, hey, I've got my membership, here's my uh, membership card, let me sign in at the door, thank you very much. I get my towel and my tennis racket and I'm a part of the country club. And you cater to me and you serve me programs to entertain and delight me. That's not what we mean by gathering. It's a community of all nations, tribes, and tongues, according to Revelation 7-9. And we organize in local expressions around the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon Christ followers. So the bond that we have in a local church and in the universal church is a bond that we enjoy, according to Matthew 12, 48 through 50, that's deeper than blood. You've heard blood is thicker than water. I would say our Christian blood of Christ is thicker than human family blood. And it suggests that we form meaningful and purpose relationships with one another. The Bible uses a bunch of phrases in the New Testament about one another, preferring and loving and honoring one another. Now, Martin Luther said something very controversial. He said, apart from the church, salvation is impossible. Not that the church provides salvation. We know God alone does. But because the saved one cannot fulfill what it means to be a Christian apart from the church, that means we need to be an active participant in a gathering of God's people. So can you be a Christian and be in prison, cut off from the gathering? Well, yeah, there's, there's exceptions. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not able to meet with the gathering. Yeah, there's an exception. We're jealous and you're, on a, uh, you're, you're marooned on a desert island or a, a tropical island. We're jealous of you, but yes, that's possible. You're separated from the local church for a season. Can you be a Christian, though, and find it difficult to connect with a local church? Well, sometimes that happens, but it doesn't happen for long. If you have resigned to just stay home and do church as a family or with your family, then I would say over time, long term, you have grossly misinterpreted how the Bible defines the church. So plain and simple, church is a gathering. It's coming together. The gathering together of God's people is always supposed to be for the better. It's to equip us for the work of ministry. But notice in verse 17, Paul says, it's not for the better. When you come together, it's a liability. It's not a blessing. It's worse for you. Now look at verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you, hear it is again, come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, when we first read through that, maybe some alarm bells went off like, what does that mean? What do you mean there must be factions? This can be a little confusing. So I want you to stay with me. There's two different words here. One word in verse 18, divisions, is different than the Greek word in verse 19 where it says factions. Okay? So if you're taking note, I want you to make sure you note these are different. The word divisions in verse 18 is internal schisms. Okay? It means having a break or a split inside the church. And Paul says that is unacceptable. But the second word in verse 19 is the word faction, and that's where we obtain the English word heresy from. And so the first word, divisions, that's deplorable, that's unacceptable. We should never have division or be divisive over silly things in a church family. But Paul is saying when there's outside heresy, then there should be division. Does that make sense? So there, we should be standing up against heresy and being willing to divide over it. Like there's the dividing line. And we're not going to allow heresy into the church. Paul says when heresies are introduced to the church, those who are true are going to rise up and they're going to be recognized as they defend and protect the church. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is this. Notice, the household of God, the church of the living God, it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, so certainly we need to defend what is true and not allow false teaching to infiltrate the church. But that is not necessarily what was happening in Corinth. Sadly, Paul says, I can't commend you. Why? Because you're being petty and divisive. And that brings us to number two, jot this down. Number two, the church is united. The Corinthians here were a divided church. I'm not going to read all this text, but we'll throw it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul basically says, you guys are supposed to be united, but you keep dividing. And it's been reported to me that there's quarreling. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. The truly spiritual says, I follow Christ. But then he says, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? You see, the church that Paul's writing to had schisms and cliques within the congregation. And I know we form cliques around different things, but ironically, they form them around their favorite preacher in the church in Corinth. Kind of a funny thing to be divided against. But this happens in every church. The temptation uh, for us to be identified by a certain personality, or we want to be identified by a theological system, or we want to be identified by a political party, and thus we become the ins, and everyone who disagrees are the outs. Calvin says this, but what does he, Paul, wish them to learn? That no one be puffed up for his own teacher against another. That is, that they be not lifted up with pride on account of their teachers. And do not abuse their names for the purpose of forming parties and rending the church asunder. Observe, too, that pride or haughtiness is the cause and commencement of all contentions when everyone, assuming to himself more than he is entitled to do, is eager to have other in subjection to him. Wow, this is all too common in the church, being divisive over secondary things. There's a story told about an old contentious Quaker and he was going from one church to the next, from one church to the next, and he could never find the true church. Well, someone once said to him, brother, what church are you in now? And he said, well, I found the true church at last. And they said, really? Well, well where is it? 
And he says, well, we're meeting in my home. And they said, well, that's, that's wonderful. How many members are a part of that church? And he said, well, it's really just my wife and myself. We are the true church, um, but I'm not too sure about my wife. <laughs> that there will always be denominations and differing church movements. And, and I don't see that as a threat. I, I think that those are necessary and good, provided they're disagreeing on secondary issues agreeably. When we say the church is united, universal, that means there's a body of orthodoxy that unites all true believers. All true believers affirm some things. So I'm going to put them on the screen. All true believers affirm these on the screen. They affirm the Godhead, that is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or Trinity. They affirm the deity, the humanity, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the sinlessness, the resurrection, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are nuances within that, but all true Christians believe those things. Uh, True Christians believe in justification by faith in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. You may not be able to explain it perfectly, but you wouldn't reject it. Uh, We believe in the Bible as the inspired, inerrant revelation of God. We believe in the existence of a literal heaven and hell, and we participate in the sacraments. We don't reject the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so those are the things that we agree on. Those are the primary issues. But there are secondary issues, aren't there? And we're going to talk about every single one of them right now. No, we're not going to do that. There are secondary issues, aren't there? Like the extent of God's sovereignty. How, how sovereign is God? There, there's a secondary issue. There's the order of salvation or the order of salutis. That's a secondary issue we can sometimes argue over. There's the creation account. There's eschatology. There's mode of baptism. Uh, These are second and even third line issues, and they form denominational distinctions. But when we make things primary issues and we say, you're not a Christian because you were not necessarily believing the exact same way I believe about the return of Christ, well, then we've got an issue. Paul said in Ephesians 4, he said, listen, there's unity. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are a united church. So notice that the Corinthians were not. Look at verse 20 again. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Notice with me the disparity here on two sides. On one side, you have hunger. And then on the other side, you have overindulgence. You have drunkenness. One person describes what this coming together looked like. Notice on the screen, they said, assemblies were few. And the members were scattered. Many came from long distances. They believe this is on the Lord's Day. They came together from long distances. Food had to be brought for the day's sustenance. The early fathers tell us that the people brought from their own homes hampers filled with cooked fowls and geese, meat. I'm in. Sign me up. Loaves of bread with skin bottles of wine, etc. The rich brought of their abundance and the poor of their poverty. So as they came together in this glorious Christian potluck, they came together, and what ended up happening was that the rich Corinthian Christians were not waiting for their poor Christian brothers to participate in the feast and even at the end in the Lord's Supper, but they were just going on without them. 
So just picture this. You're, you are rich. You own your own business. You can kind of clock in and out whenever you wish. But when remember we talked about being a slave a few weeks back. If you were a slave, you couldn't leave early by any means. You had to wait until your time was out. And, and so you'd have to work long hours. You don't have the luxury of leaving work early. And so the affluent Christians in Corinth were satiating themselves with their own food and wine. And by the time the poor Christians arrive, the haves had more than they needed, and the have-nots were deprived of what they needed. So in the Lord's Supper, there was blatant inequality. Yet when we look at Christ's work on Calvary, uh, commemorated in the Lord's Supper, we see all the saints are equal in him. So how could one commemorate Christ's equalizing work of atonement by eating the meal in a way that exhibited inequality. How could the saints worship Jesus? And even Jesus said in Luke 6.20, blessed are the poor. How could they come and shame the poor? How could those who proclaimed, we have unity in the spirit with our fellow believers, ignore the physical needs of those who came with no or little food? How could a church that is supposed to be one body begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper with only a partial part of the body present? See, what the Corinthians were doing at the Lord's Supper denied the very things the Supper intended to symbolize. It's not a wonder that Paul says, as you gather together as a church, you're not even celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're not even recognizing what Christ has done. And that's when Paul corrects their thinking. And we quote this next text a lot during our once a month, beginning of the month communion um, participation. And Paul here corrects their behavior. He's like, you didn't learn this from me, and I didn't learn it from Christ. Here's what I did learn, and this is what I received and what I passed on to you. Notice verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, this third point is so important. I want you to jot this down. Number three, the church is distinct. The church is distinct. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not just a few people getting together to eat bread and drink wine or grape juice if you're Baptist. That is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. When we partake of a piece of the bread from one loaf as a gathered church, we not only symbolize our union with Christ in his atoning work, but also our union with his body, the church. We symbolize that we all together constitute the body of Christ. And you and I are equal sharers in the salvific work of Christ. So when we proclaim the Lord's death, we're professing not just our unity in the body, but also our equality. We're all one body. We have equal standing in the body. What a message our world needs to hear today. And so it's by virtue of Jesus' work at Calvary that we are saved. No one is more saved or less saved than anyone else in the body. And so you and I, as we come together to partake in the Lord's Supper, to gather with the church, we are. What is happening here today is something where we are so distinct from the world. The Lord's Supper is the commemoration of Jesus' sacrificial life and death. It's for us, the him, sanctification of lost sinners in whose place he was condemned and in whom, him, in whom the saints have been forgiven, justified, and glorified. And so when we come together as a church and when we partake of the Lord's table, this isn't just a pagan feast. We're receiving 
the body and blood of Jesus on our behalf. That is not something that anyone or everyone has the freedom to partake. It is for Christ's church only. So you and I, we as the church are distinct. We are, in other words, set apart from the world. Does that make sense? We're not just a gathering of people like, hey, the world does concerts really well, so we're going to do concerts. We're going to do that, like a, a Christian version of concerts. And so we're going we're gonna, to, like the church has slogans. And so we're going to take those slogans and, and put Christian t-shirts and kind of Christianize those slogans. And you know what? The church does like TED Talks. So we're going to do TED Talks and just kind of Christianize them. We're going to change it from YouTube to GodTube. And we're going to change it from Facebook to Faithbook. And we're going to take something that's, that's ungodly and make it godly. That's not the idea of the church. We are so radically different from the world. We're distinct. And in fact, the Heidelberg Catechism is a series of questions and answers that help form and inform much of our Christian beliefs. And here's one of the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. One of the questions is, what do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian church? And when you hear Catholic, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means the universal church. So, so what do you believe? And here's the answer. This is supposed to be us answering as a Christian. I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Christian, you are distinct from the world. You've been called out of darkness into gloriously wonderful light. You may not feel different. You may not feel changed, feel saved. It's not about your feelings. You are, according to the scriptures, brought from death to life. You who were a foreigner are now brought near. We are the fellowship, my favorite phrase, of the blood-bought. And so that means we're set apart from this world. We're a member of a new group of people. And that brings us to number four. Jot this down. Number four, the church is a covenant community a covenant community. You're going to hear that phrase much more in the coming weeks. Notice verses 25 through 32. Uh, Paul goes on to say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm enacting a new covenant. You are now a covenant community. Do this as often as you drink it, not just to his disciples, but to all of his followers. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaimers of the gospel. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is, my, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Another Version says, fallen asleep, but the idea is that you've died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, it's important to point out, and we've said this multiple times at communion, that Jesus alone is worthy. So this is not necessarily speaking about, you wouldn't interpret this to say that I need to be worthy or that I'm unworthy. Um, the word unworthy is not an adjective here. It's an adverb. It's describing the act of eating and drinking and not putting worth into the bread and cup. So doing this, coming together as a church and then kind of doing the ceremony, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper without regard to Christ is to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And Paul says this has brought untimely illness and death upon some in the church. 
So instead, we're to come to the Lord's table and we're to confess our sin, we're to repent, we're to see again, and as often as we do it, the justifying work of Christ through his atoning death on our behalf. But just think about this for a minute. We are people, the people of all the world who celebrate and who are the recipients of the finished work of Christ. So corporately, that means you and I are a part of a covenant community. Even the word church itself in our New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out assembly. You've been called out of darkness into this assembly, into light. You've been brought from death into eternal life. And so this community is rooted in the work of Christ on our behalf at Calvary. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, he sits down with his disciples to enjoy the Passover meal, which of course pointed ahead to Christ himself as its sure fulfillment. Have you ever been a part of a Seder dinner, a Passover dinner that points ahead to Christ? It's, it's amazing. It's fascinating. And, and all of these things pointed to Jesus. And yet after supper, Jesus takes the cup and establishes a new covenant. We see this covenant in Jeremiah 31. You guys can take a picture of the screen, go back and read the verses later. But, but God says, I'm making a new covenant with my people. And so the church, we are a covenant community. Paul recounts to the Ephesians where God has brought them. He says, listen, you've been brought from separation to union. You've been brought from alienation to reconciliation. You've been brought from being a stranger to having now access to the Father. I don't know if that excites you. We need some amens in here today. You've been brought from being an alien to being a citizen, a saint, and a fellow member of the household of God. You who were far off, without God, without hope, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the church, you and I, we are a covenant community. You and I are recipients by faith of the promises of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so thus, that means we join him in that work and we proclaim. We are proclaimers of the gospel until he comes. And so we put the body of Christ, this covenant community, the, the logical idea is that we put this community ahead of, in front of our own comforts. And that brings us to number five. Our fifth and final description of the church from this text is number five, the church is considerate of one another. That's why he says in verse 33, 33, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Among the other things, I will give directions when I come. So the solution to the divisive, carnal church attitude in Corinth, the solution was to remember the Lord, to worship the Lord rightly, and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, when you come together to meet, to eat, wait for one another. In other words, consider others better than your own lack of appetite or your, your hunger. Consider others and, and put other brothers in Christ above your hunger, above your appetite. Put the church in front of your right to satisfy your hunger. Paul would say it this way, the church does not exist to meet your needs. We all exist to care for and consider one another's needs. Uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians, you remember our study in Galatians, and he said in Galatians 6.10 uh, that we should do good to all, 
but especially to the household of believers. Now, are we encouraged biblically? Someone would say, well, wait, hold on. We're encouraged biblically to love and serve our neighbors and our enemies, Pastor. I would say, yes, amen. We, we need to love our enemies and serve them and, and, uh, and turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and all those things, of course. But the first priority of our loving service and hospitality is to our covenant community, to the local church. So with all of that in mind, what does that mean for us at Shoreline Church? What does that mean for us who are completely independent, autonomous Western Christians? What does it mean for you watching, and you're not a part of Shoreline, but you're a part of uh, the church, but you're not in a local church? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for all of us today? Well, I want us to jot down five application points, and these are going to seem a bit legalistic from the do or do not, and usually I try to say don't have application that is do and do not, but you'll see why we're going here in a minute. So I just want you to jot these down, and there's a, this is rooted in the gospel. So let me give you these. Number one, I want to encourage us, don't forsake the gathering, okay? Don't forsake the gathering. In other words, we make our church gatherings a priority, and we make it our aim to weekly meet and encourage one another unless we're providentially hindered. One scholar pointed out that the word saint plural, occurs in the singular in the New Testament. It always is inevitably plural. So we are the church, and that means corporately. That means laying aside excuses and making the church gathering a non-negotiable. I want to speak to the men here this morning and the men watching online. Men in your home, you need to take the lead in this area. You need to proactively make the church gathering a priority. And the ones who do that, the men who make in their families the church gathering a priority, are the ones who, I, I've seen it, they see their families transformed by God's grace. But, but men, we aren't truly being a godly man if we put sleep, we put sports, or we put fishing in front of our family's spiritual health. One day, we have to give an account. And I want to encourage you as a man, as a spiritual leader of my home and of this church community, men, let's be the examples. Let's make church a non-negotiable, the gathering. Number two, number two, I want to encourage you, don't be divisive. Again, these are do's and do nots rooted in the gospel, and we'll get to this, but one of the marks of carnality is to just find something to disagree about and to be unwilling to find unity and reconciliation on things that you do agree about. So today, members of churches are being torn apart by one another. Listen to this. They're being, like, this needs to be time stamped to July 2020, and we can go back and go, nuh-uh, 50 years from now, we're gonna go, no way. Whereas church Christians, Christ followers were divided over this. I mean, literally, this is happening today. Christians are devouring one another uh, over, not the gospel, but over whether we should wear masks or not. Man, shame on us. Thomas Brooks says this, for wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. You see, one of the ways Jesus said the world would know that we are his disciples is by our love for one another. He prayed in John 17 that we would be a church that was united. And I'm saddened to see so many believers arguing over petty differences and not being willing just to lovingly listen. It feels like we've lost the art of healthy dialogue and disagreement and just listening. We have a cancel culture where we just unfollow or unfriend anyone with whom we disagree. 
So we fail when we do that to truly bear with one another like Colossians 3 exhorts, exhorts us to. If there's ever a phrase for the church, bear with one another, man, that describes it, right? I got to bear with some, some disagreements. Um, listen, if there's heresy, then we'll divide over it. But so many of us are soft on the heresy and hard on the fellow believers. And my brothers, this should not be. So let's not be divisive. Number three, I want to exhort us, don't be worldly. Again, we are distinct from this world, and the world prefers its own. The world looks out for number one, for me. The world doesn't understand sacrifice, surrender, or yielding to others. The world certainly doesn't understand the glory of the cross. That's why I'm baffled why so many Christians today are turning to the world for wisdom, counsel, and direction rather than the Word of God. Listen, you're either going to submit to the world or you're going to submit to the Word. You can't submit to both. Charles Spurgeon said, that very church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. You see, the worldly church or the worldly Christian is literally a contradiction in terms. Paul Washer said it even stronger. He said, the church must seek to be biblical rather than relevant. I would argue the church is relevant. The Bible is relevant. He says, we're not going to leave a mark upon our culture because we've studied its ways and adapted ourselves to it. We are relevant when we reject the world outright and are its polar opposite. This present darkness provides a great opportunity for the church to be the salt of the earth. But if we mix with the very impurities we are supposed to expose, we are as useless as our culture already believes us to be. Wow. So I want to encourage you and exhort you, don't be worldly. Don't be like the world. Be set apart. Number four, application. Don't worry, it gets worse. Uh, I want to encourage us, don't live selfishly. In the Corinthians day at common meals, it was expected that the upper class, this is in the unbelieving world, the upper class would receive better and more food than the lower class. And this cultural custom was being carried over into the church and Christians weren't really sharing with one another. But see, the Lord's Supper illustrates for us what our hearts and minds neglect, forget, and resist. That unfailing love gives. Unfailing love lays down, sacrifices, doesn't seek its own. When we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we realize it's all about the cross. And the cross offends self-preservation. The cross offends ungodly ambitions. The cross offends misguided pursuits. And the cross challenges us to consider one another better than ourselves. So communion perfectly and perpetually reminds us that Christ has accomplished and, or what he's accomplished and it invites us to receive his grace, partake of his blessing and proclaim his death until he comes. Richard Phillips says that communion is the worship practice instituted by Jesus to be rehearsed and repeated throughout all time as a witness and reminder of the gospel. So may we never do as the Corinthians did and forget the gospel, forget communion or cheapen it. We are to live in an unselfish way when we think about the church. Let me say it this way. The church is not Uber. <clears throat> you guys know Uber? Yeah, raise your hand if you've ever used Uber. How many of you guys have done this? So you're like, yeah, okay, cool. Some of you have used it. You're like, I'm more of a Lyft. Okay, well, Uber is this kind of cool app on your phone where you can basically be in a city and just say, you know, I'm going to get on my app and I'm just going to order the car for personal use and I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to tell the driver where I'm going or he knows where I'm going 
and he takes me where I want to go. And if he's too slow or too fast, if he's too talkative or he's too quiet, if he doesn't have the temperature set right and gets me to my destination on time, then I'm not going to tip him or her a very good tip, and I'm definitely leaving them a bad rating. Now, that's a, a way a lot of people view church. They view church as their Uber. I, I attend, now take me where I want to go. And if you don't, well, then I'm just going to leave and I'm going to give you a bad rating. We've even had people make fake profiles on Facebook and leave bad reviews for us on Facebook. I don't lose sleep over that, but, but that's how we treat church sometimes. We, we just kind of come and go as if it's Uber. Listen, the church is not Uber. The church is more like a bus, right? You get on a bus. The bus has a schedule, and the bus is going, and the schedule's not your schedule. And so you get on the bus. There's a lot of strange people on the bus. Have you ever noticed? You're like, wow, there's a lot of interesting people on this bus. This is kind of strange. This is very different, diverse, and unique. And you find a seat on the bus. If there's no seats, you kind of stand there and go, I'm happy to be on the bus. I'm just glad I'm here. And, and there's diversity, and everyone on the bus is on the same place. They're going to the same place. They have the same route. The bus is going in a direction. You don't stand up and yell at the driver and say, hey, turn here. I need to go a different direction. No, you go and enjoy the ride, and all of you reach the destination together. Has church become Uber for you? We need to make the church our bus. Are you living selfishly? Is there an area of comfort, an area of selfishness, an area of personal preference or consumerism that has crept into your view of the church? So often I hear people sharing their expectations of what church should offer them rather than laying down their lives to serve their brothers. Imagine if the great men in, in, the, in the church history, in the faith, decided I'm going to live for me rather than laying down their lives. Well, finally, number five. Don't overlook the church. Don't overlook it. Charles Spurgeon wrote a poem, which is great. He says, some go to church to take a walk. Some go there to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there their time to spend. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. The wise go there to worship God. Listen, we need your gifts. We need your participation. So if you've made church about you, guess what? There's a great answer. Repent. Have you let past hurts keep you from koinonia, from being a part of the body? Forgive them. Have you received Christ's work on your behalf? Well, then continue to trust and follow. Have you prayed for and submitted to a local body of believers? Well, if you haven't, consider doing that. Now, why would we not do those five things? The answer is in light of who Christ is and thus who the church is. I'm not giving you those do nots out of a sense of personal, um, you know, you just need to go out and, and try harder, do better. All that I'm saying is rooted in who Christ is. So the church, you and I, we are Christ's bride, Christ's body, and Christ's building. His body is one. His bride is set apart, and his building embodies his love and truth. So your very identity is rooted in the person and work of Christ. That means church is not an option for the believer. It is essential, not only to Christians to gather, but also for reaching the world. Let's sum it up with one sentence, and this will be kind of our idea as we close. The church is a united covenant community that gathers together, distinct from the world, 
to bring glory to Christ and to care for one another. We need to learn how to make church a priority in our prayers, a priority with our care, a priority with our time, talent, and treasure. And we're going to dive into that more next week as we learn what it means to identify and use our gifts in a covenant community, not for our sake, but for theirs. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this is not birthed out of any agenda. It's not birthed out of my opinion of the church, my expression of the church, my personal preference or desire for the church. But when I come to the scriptures, I realize, Lord, how the church comes before me, that glorifying Christ comes before my personal preferences and my comforts. So Father, I pray for me right now that you'd forgive me personally for making the church about my own uh, worth or my own desires or my own preferences. Lord, I can so often critique this or that and say, well, I wish we had this, I wish we had that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I just ask and repent today that you would have mercy on me for being a person who comes to church expecting others to do things for me. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to celebrate the person and work of Christ and to realize that we as a church need to rise up and be the church that you said in your word, the gates of hell would not prevail against. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts in a transformative way, even as we conclude with singing. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me as we remind ourselves that the church needs to arise in these dark days? Let's sing together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.